All right. Good to be with you guys. We're in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just read the verses, verses 2 through 7. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I'm curious if you were asked to describe peace, if you someone to say, hey, what is peace? Describe it to me. Uh, what would you say? What would you say? How would you attempt, right, to describe it? You know, it's, it's one of those things that I think most of us, we, we just kind of feel, but we don't often know how to articulate what it is. And I think more so, I'm curious if you would describe it as you attempt to do so. Would you describe it using the absence of things or the presence of things? What I mean is maybe you would describe peace by talking about the absence of things. You would say something like, well, peace is the absence of conflict in my friendships. Peace is, is having a, a, an absence of a stressful work environment. You know, peace would be the absence of my kids screaming at the top of their lungs during the regularly scheduled hyper hour before dinner, right? Uh, maybe you would just say, peace would be the absence of war, right? Would, what would you focus on? Would it be the absence of things? Or would you talk about the presence of things? You know, maybe you would describe peace by saying, it would be the presence of my father and mother with me this Christmas. Peace would be the experience of having all my kids under one roof this holiday season. Uh, peace would, would be having money in the bank, right? It would be having a job that I actually enjoy waking up on Mondays to go to. Right? Maybe you would even just think of a setting that you love. You know, you're like, well, I don't know, peace would be like me sitting in a nice chair with a blanket in front of a fireplace, you know, with the, the Christmas tree in view and the, my favorite dinner cooking in the oven and Maybe my, my favorite book or my Bible in my lap, or if you're like, I'm not a reader, it'd be, you know, some game on TV, you know, of your team winning or the favorite movie that you've watched a hundred times over, right? You're like, that would be my setting, right? That would be peace. How, how would you describe it? How would you attempt to describe what peace is? I think if we're being really real, when we describe peace, if we could even really get our hands around it, even for a moment, it feels kind of like wishful thinking, Peace feels often like wishful thinking. It's something that we easily admit that we lack. You walk in here tonight, and if someone were to say, are you at peace tonight, you would kind of struggle to say, oh, yes, I am, right? See, whenever we feel at peace, we even know that it'll pass. It feels like a moment that we want to try to capture, but we know that it'll, it'll pass. 
So we begin to even wonder, is peace even possible in an unsettled, outraged, and anxious world? If you're asking that question tonight, if you are wondering that very thing, uh, then you, my friend, are on the brink of discovering the true beauty and wonder of Christmas. You are. Uh, What we see in our passage is in verses 2 through 5, we're seeing this great promise of peace, this great promise of peace. In this final movement of our passage, we're going to see where unending peace is found, and what we're going to see is that real lasting peace, the peace that you lack, the peace that feels elusive to you, is actually only found in Jesus. It's quite simple, but if it gets a hold of your heart, it'll forever change you. So let's look at this promise of peace in verses 2 through 5. What does it say in verse 2 again? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It's interesting when you think about lights, right, in general, or light as a whole, or especially when you think about Christmas lights, right? The, The thing that's interesting about lights is that until it's dark out, you can't actually appreciate them. Right? You can't appreciate lights until the, the light, till the dark comes, right? Till the sun sets, do people actually turn their Christmas lights on? When you drive by and you see someone with Christmas lights on in the middle of the day, you're like, they're just wasting energy, right? You never walk around and, and see people in the middle of the day with a flashlight as they walk down the streets of Main Street or something in Gresham. If you did, you would think something's wrong, right? We don't, we don't do that. We, we can't appreciate the light until the dark comes, until the lights go out. Maybe in the middle of a winter, a horrible storm hits, and what do you do? You begin to grab for the candles. You begin to grab for the flashlights, and you appreciate the light, don't you? In the same way, we can only begin to truly understand Christmas when we see it against the backdrop of the darkness of the fallen world. And that's exactly what the people in our passage find themselves in. Isaiah 9 was written about 800 years before Christmas, right? Before the birth of Jesus, during the time When the kingdom of Israel was actually in great conflict, it was split into two different kingdoms. You had the kingdom in the south, which was known as Judah, and you had the kingdom in the north, which was ruled by Israel, right? And so people in the south were descendants of King David, and during this exact passage, it's King Ahaz who is on the throne in Judah. And during chapters 7 through 12, we are told about this great conflict between these two kingdoms. And what has happened is this, Israel in the north has linked themselves up with an alignment with the kingdom of Syria, and they're threatening to come and attack Judah so they can overthrow Judah and set up one of their own puppet kings in Jerusalem. So when we go to a passage like this, we could see just dark clouds of war, of sin, of relational and even national conflict rolling over the horizon. And what you have specifically here is King Ahaz. Again, he's the rightful king in Judah, and he has to decide what he's going to do in the face of this threat of Syria and Israel coming to attack. And God sends him Isaiah. And Isaiah basically says to him, trust me. Right? Don't worry about this. If you trust in me, you will stand. But Ahaz listens to God and basically then says, no, that, that's not enough. And so what he does is he prefers to trust in this great, powerful nation of Assyria, There's this big, bad, powerful nation, and he's hoping if I link up with them, I will unleash this monster on my enemies, they will be destroyed. And that's exactly what happens. The problem is he unleashes the monster, 
And after his enemies are destroyed, the monster turns around and defeats Judah, right? And he is left then in this place of horrible devastation and ruin. It's it's equated to walking in darkness. If you look at the end of chapter 8, what does it say in verse 21? They're going to pass through the land, Israel or Judah will, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. They will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. Do you see what has happened? God has warned them, saying, if you do this, you're going to receive this sort of judgment. It's like a parent saying to a child, if you do this thing, I'm going to take away this privilege from you. But maybe you did this when you were a child, or maybe you've experienced this if you've been a parent or something like that. You, you warn the child, and then the child still does that very thing they're warned not to do, and you actually take away the privilege. You do the thing that you said you are going to do, and the child turns around and goes, I hate you, right? They take it out on you, right? That's exactly what Israel does here. They turn back to God, and they're like, you're not good. So over and over again, God is saying, trust me, follow me, listen to me, listen to my prophets. Israel instead has gone their own way, so God gives them what they wanted, and it didn't provide the peace they thought they would get. Instead, what does it say? Everywhere they looked, all they see is darkness. All they see is gloom and anguish. So think about it. What is this darkness? You can't just make it up, whatever you want the darkness to be. It's the darkness here of being separated from God. And you guys, that's the the real darkness that you and I should worry about. You see, the greatest darkness in this world is not the brokenness that we experience in different, real, painful ways every day, whether that's relational or emotional or physical or financial type brokenness. Those are all symptoms, right? They're all echoes, if you will, of a deeper problem. It's the deeper problem of human sinfulness, right, that consistently lives out not trusting in God but depending on other so-called gods in our lives. This is the darkness that every single one of us finds ourselves in at one point or another in our lives. It's the problem that we're all guilty of. We, We have all looked at how things work in our lives, if we could just be honest. We've all looked at what God said and we've thought, you know what, I think I can do better. But I don't think God knows what he's talking about. You know, you know, he just doesn't understand me, right? He doesn't exactly understand what I'm going through. I'm not going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in this instead, right? See, in little ways and big ways, we've all done this, and it leaves us with a lack of peace left in darkness. So you guys, every little lack of peace unresolved conflict in your life, every trial, every war, every act of hate, it's actually meant to cause us to remember the ultimate darkness, the ultimate peace we lack beneath the peace that we lack. Do you know what I'm saying? But then we have this shocking and stunning promise in verse 2 that we already read, right? What's it? It's a promise of light. Right? What they don't deserve, they're going to get. This light is going to break through that gloom and darkness, and it's going to restore peace to God's people. What does it say? The, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. What's the experience of that light? 
Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Right? So, so we know this, right? There is a joy that comes when light pierces the darkness. Isn't that true? I mean, living in the Pacific Northwest, we know this, right? We, we know this, right? When, when you've been, you know, trudging through the winters and all of a sudden we have a day like today where it's so sunny. We had a few days this week, you know, and the, you feel the warmth of the light on your face. What happens? Your heart does a little cartwheel, doesn't it? You're like, everything's going to be all right, right? That's experience that we all have, even in a physical creation sort of way, as light shining in after this experience of darkness. This is not joy, though, from simply Assyria, no longer being this nation that's taken them over and hurting them, but this is a sort of light and a sort of joy being described here when people have their judgment for their sin actually dealt with. How is this being described? Well, look at it. What does it say? What kind of joy, what kind of gladness is this? It's described as a crop. We're talking about food here. There there would be lots of fear in agrarian societies that if you didn't have a good crop, a good harvest in the fall, you're going to have a really bad long year, right? And so here, this is being said, no, this is, this is going to be amazing, right? Because we had a good harvest season, right? They didn't have Winco's, they didn't have Fred Meyer's, right? Where you just have food imported from other states if you have a bad rainfall or something like that. No, this is joy then that can only come at a full harvest, or joy that comes, we're told. In the last line there, when the war is over and you're divvying up your enemy's resources and you're benefiting from them. Right, that's the description in verse 3. This is a movement from fear to joy. But what is this joy based on? It's based on the light that's come. Well, what is the actual light that's going to break the darkness? Well, notice how the next three verses, verses 4 through 6, every verse starts with the word what? For. For. So the author is telling us that he's giving us three reasons for this light that's breaking in. The first two reasons are telling us what's going to happen to bring this kind of gladness. But the third one, which is that second movement, is telling us how this is all going to even happen. Right? The third four tells us what this light breaking in actually hangs on. So look at verse 4, right? The first reason for gladness that's being experienced here is that when the light finally dawns, This people's oppression and slavery is going to be over. They're they're going to be free. And this is brought up, this this story of how God showed up with Gideon to defeat the Midianites back in the book of Judges, if you've read that story. It's an interesting one. God is going to show up again to free his people from their oppression. And this was different, right, than their freedom from slavery in Egypt, because in Egypt, right, they are in a different land, not their own. They're being oppressed. They're enslaved. But here, right, Assyria has occupied their land. So Assyria has, has constantly been this threat. Imagine every single day you're kind of looking over your shoulder. Every single day you're experiencing oppression when it's your land, right? So, so imagine the peace that comes from being free and beginning to walk around the streets again without that sort of fear of looking over your shoulder. This is the kind of freedom God brings when the light finally dawns. I mean, I mean, I heard a story this week of a man who grew up as a, a missionary's kid in El Salvador, and the violence was so bad there that every single night, if they wanted to live, basically, they had to lie on the floor. They, they couldn't ever get up and be seen through a window because it would almost be certain that they would be shot at. I can't imagine that sort of life. But imagine the day 
when you actually could just, it'd be midnight and the lights are fully on, the blinds are open, and you're just sitting in a rocker in your house again. Right? That would be such a liberating sort of freeing moment, wouldn't it? You finally aren't looking over your shoulder anymore. You don't have to sleep on the floor anymore. It's that kind of freedom that we're being seen here. Right? Then we have the second reason in verse 5. What's the second reason? Well, the battle is finally over. When you stop and, stop and think about it, this is a, a really graphic verse here in verse 5. Right? Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. I mean, what an image. Garments rolled in blood being burned. I mean, what does that have to do with Christmas, right? What's wrong with Josh, right? That he would pick a passage about blood and fire, you know, that kind of thing. This is talking about the end of a war. I, I don't know if you're, I might be a weirdo or something, but uh, every time I, I see like a, a war movie or even like a, a fictitious war movie, like Lord of the Rings or something, they always have those sort of panned out views of the battlefield. You know what I'm talking about? Those quick moments where there's this huge panoramic view of all the battle and all the chaos going on, people fighting. And every single time I think that, or see that, I always think, like, man, someone's got to clean that up, right? Again, I might be a weirdo, but every single time I'm like, man, like, what happens after the war's, you know? Like, you just... That's gonna, someone's got to do it, right? How are the sheep going to graze again or whatever was happening in that field, you know, before that thing happens? Well, that's exactly the imagery here, actually. Maybe I'm not a weirdo, right? There's people cleaning stuff up, and they're throwing it all in a bonfire. Why? Because the battle's over. It, it's graphic, but it's so liberating. I mean, what a picture. In fact, there's even a sense of finality here, because look at what they're burning as well at the beginning part of the uh, verse. They're burning boots, I can, ex I can, we could all expect that if there's these blood-stained garments, you're going to want to burn those, right? You can't use those again. But why destroy valuable boots that can be worn again? Right? Why destroy boots when there's going to be another war, right? You'll probably need them again. Well, only if they aren't going to be used again. You'd only burn boots if there's not going to be another war again. Do you see? Right? There's a sense of finality here. In other words, there is no more war when this light comes. It's so powerful to see this promise of peace. It's so sure. I mean, just look at the way it's even written. It's talking about future things in the past tense. It's really striking, actually. It's a done deal. It's not just a promise. It's so sure God is talking about it as if it's already happened. I mean, look at it. What does it say? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Well, not yet, right? Not when they're reading this. Light has shown. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. And they are glad, right? The rod of his oppressor you have broken on the day of Midian. Right? Those are all past tense. And then you have this, you know, just, just to be sure that we're not talking about something that's already happened. We have verse 5. It says what's going to happen. It will be burned. Right, so we are talking about something in the future, but it's as if it's in the past, right? What a striking promise of peace. I mean, it'd be like me if you've never been to Disneyland before in your life. And let's just say I took out a second mortgage on my home and I went up to you tonight and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm sending you to Disneyland for a week this Christmas, right? Don't lie, you'd be so pumped, right? If you've never been before, and I was like, I, I just wanted you and all, whoever you want to take with you, you're going to go to Disneyland, right? For the very first time. You'd be like, wow, that's amazing, right? That's going to be so fun. But then imagine if I was like, 
yeah, it's going to be great. You have ridden Thunder Mountain Railroad. You have gone down Splash Mountain. You have taken a picture with Mickey. And I'm just going off about Disneyland. All of a sudden, you're going to be like, this guy's weird, right? What are you talking about? I haven't done those things yet. Why would you describe them to me in that way? It's because it's so certain. I would never talk to you that way because I don't know if you're going to be able to do that. I can say things to you, but I don't actually know if it's going to happen. Our promises aren't like that. But God's promises are so sure that he can talk about them in the past tense. How amazing is that? Right? When the light pierces the darkness, our slavery has ended. Right? There will be no more battles to fight. There will be no more battles to try and win. All battles will be finished. God is going to make right all the wrong in the world. How? What does this great promise rest on? I mean, do you just need to try harder to to experience this? Maybe fix some things in your life and you'll finally have peace. Do we just need a little bit more Christmas cheer and a a few more good deeds and the world will finally be a better place? We don't need a light, you guys, that comes from within us. The world hasn't been fixed that way. No, we need a, a light that will come from outside of us. We need a light to dawn from the outside, and that's exactly what this piece hinges on. That's what we see in 6 and 7, where this unending piece is found. It's in the third four, right? Four. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What does this light dawning hang on? Well, it's a child, a child with a government, a child who's going to sit on David's throne just like Ahaz. A child who comes into the world in the most human ways through birth, but is described in ways that surpasses anybody in human history. I mean, notice something so utterly unique about this royal child. He isn't just born, he's given. Unto us, a son is given. I mean, have you ever met anybody else in the world that this is described as? They were given to the world, right? You've never said this. You've never been like, oh, did you see the pictures of little Lucy, right? She was given to the world at 10 pounds and 6 ounces at 7.45. You know, you've never said that, right? You say they're born. Right? They're born. But this child, no, he's given. Right? This promised child is none other than who do you think, right? Jesus. I mean, this is not debated in any Christian circle. This is the climactic Old Testament promise of the advent of Jesus given to the world. And look, it's important to see that this child that's given has some names, right? And his names matter. Uh, There's that famous line in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, right, where the person says, what's in a name? That which we, we, we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. And that line is a famous line. It's written by Shakespeare to convey that the naming of things is irrelevant, 
right? But Isaiah actually disagrees with Shakespeare. I think you should too, okay? This child has some names, and they really matter. He has four names, in fact. The second one is the most striking. What is it? His name is Mighty God. Some people have tried to actually water this down, you guys, and say that this just means he's like a godlike hero. But nobody's fallen for that, right? And there's a simple reason, because in the next chapter, verse 21, it says this. It says, a remnant, uh, chapter 10, verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And no one's like, oh, that's like a hero-like person, right? No, that means God. Well, there's no doubt what is meant here. So Jesus, you guys, is not a prophet. He's not a holy man. He, he's not the most interesting person in the, on the planet. Right? He is God. He's God. Right? The holy, transcendent, creator God. Is this hard to believe? Oh, you betcha. Right? But this is what it means to be a Christian. We have the the famous story at the end of John's gospel. It's the climax, really, of his gospel account where Jesus is resurrected and Thomas, who we all call Doubting Thomas, the poor guy, right? We're all like him. He goes, I will not believe unless I can put my hands in his nail holes. And Jesus appears to Thomas and he goes, come here, put your hands in my nail holes. Touch my side where they pierced me. And what does Thomas say? He goes, my Lord and my God. That is the first Christian confession, you guys. That's what it means to be a Christian. Is to look at Jesus and go, my Lord and my God. He's my God. This is the first thing this passage tells you about this child's name. And it gets more stunning if you look carefully, because what's so remarkable about these names is that they actually describe the Trinity. What is he called? The Wonderful Counselor. That means he's the supernatural teacher, the one who alone can point out the truth to men. I mean, do you remember the great word used to describe God, the Holy Spirit? He's the Counselor. And one of the great words used to describe the Son is that he's a prince or a king that will bring peace between God and men. And the, the title of God that is most precious to every single Christian is what? that he is our father. This son will be a wonderful counselor. He's the one who will lead everyone to the truth if they will follow him. And more amazingly, this child will be called everlasting father. What does that mean? Well, let us think about what a good father is. Right? He cares directly for his family. He provides for them. He feeds them. He protects them. He cares for them. In this case, this is a, a worldwide family, Right? This means that this child, Jesus, will be the one who cares for God's flock. He has an intimate knowledge of you, right? You will never be out of his sight. He knows every number of hairs on your head. There's not a sparrow that falls to the ground without him noticing it. And then this third title, the most famous at Christmas, right? The emphasis even of our candle here tonight, what is he? He's the Prince of Peace. And that does not mean that Jesus, when that light initially dawns, when the light comes into the world, it does not mean that he was going to bring peace in totality on the earth today. No, he warns us, right, that there's going to be many wars to come. But the peace that he's going to bring is the peace that your heart's actually panting for. It's the peace that really matters. It's peace that only can be 
experienced through the blood of his cross. That's why Ephesians 2, what does it say? Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, wandering, right, in the darkness, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. It's talking about the church, all people, united to Christ as one. And he has broken down in his flesh, that's through the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. You see, Jesus brings peace between God and you, right? This is the absolute wonder of Christmas. All those who have said at one point or another in our lives, right, I don't trust God, he doesn't really get it, right? He doesn't really understand me and what I really need, so I'm gonna trust in this thing instead, right? It's those of us who've then enshrouded ourselves in darkness, that gloom and anguish that you see at the end of chapter eight. Yeah, guys, can you, can you believe this, right? I mean, don't lose your wonder. Don't lose your wonder. The baby in the manger is God in his fullness. Our creator, mighty God, our counselor, our father, our prince of peace. Well, what does this mean to you? Well, it means everything. This is why we preach Christ. This is why at GBC we don't get too far away from Jesus. Why? Because the Bible says, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's everything. Guys, Christmas is, is interesting because it's, it's about authority. It's not really the word that we most think of when we think of Christmas. I know to our modern ears I maybe just said a cuss word, right, when I said the word authority, but, but really Christmas is about authority. When you celebrate Christmas, you are celebrating that a new king has arrived and he's been given to the world and he is incarnate deity. Let your mind think about that. That's not boring. That's better than anything else you can let your mind run to and think about ever. So, so what's life like when you finally stop trying to do things your own way and you start living under the rule? Of this child king. Seven, verse 7 tells you, well, his government's going to increase and it will have no end. So basically, one day there will be no other kingdom except his kingdom. So if you are not a joyful citizen of his kingdom now, that will not work out for you because you can't just get a new visa, right, to another place. But if you receive Jesus as king, Look at what his unending kingdom brings. What does it say? The unending increase of peace. Right? This is the word shalom. It means when all things are as they should be. When everything is the way that it should be. Not in my mind, not in my perspective, but in God's perspective. Right? As Prince of Peace, he will bring full shalom, everything as it should be. He promises then to you that your best days are always ahead of you and never behind you. How can you be sure of that? Well, he really doubles down. God wants you to know that this is sure, because what does it end with? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's actually a really interesting thing that's said here, because again, this is prophecy. Prophecy is saying, hey, God says this is going to happen. Right? So the Bible's saying, this is going to happen, and then it ends by saying, it's going to happen. Right? What's going to make it happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Right? This word zeal means to become intensely red. 
It's probably happened to you once in your life at least, right? So this is the idea of color flooding a person's face with the flush of deep emotion. It's used in other parts of the Bible to talk about a husband's jealousy for the love of his wife. That's a good kind of jealousy, right? It's where a husband loves his wife, sacrifices for her, right? Is faithful to her and longs for her to be faithful to him, right? That's the image. It's the same here. Well, our zeal is different though, right? Because our zeal, what does it often do? It bulldozes people, right? We have something in our mind. I have a zeal. I want to get it done. Get out of my way. But what does the zeal of the Lord of hosts do? What does God's zeal do? Well, it drove him to the lowest place. God's zeal drove him to suffer, right? Jesus, the king, mighty God, everlasting father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, that king, he took credit for your failures and gave you credit for his success. Who's like that? He made peace between you and God, not by signing a treaty, but by spilling his own blood. He's the ruler who climbed onto a cross and he literally endured your deepest darkness. Mark's gospel talks about this, that when noon came, right? When Jesus is hanging on a cross at noon, so the time where light should be the brightest, what happens, it's as if it's midnight, At three o'clock, what happened? Well, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you see, God's people here in Isaiah 9, they were thrust into deep darkness because of their sin. They felt forsaken by God, and they turned around and they said, God, I hate you. They deserved it, though, just like us. But Jesus experienced the greatest darkness, right? The greatest lack of peace so that God's light of peace would actually shine on your heart tonight. I don't know if you are aware of this. Um, I love castles, and um, we don't have any here. But they have some in Europe, uh, which is amazing. And I'm told that some castles that are no longer in use, right? They have these deep wells inside of them, wells of water. And that's a very strategic and really wise move to have a castle, a fortress of defense and a source of water that's within those walls. That's so brilliant. Why? Because a lot of castles, they have aqueducts that bring water to the castle from the outside, but that's not that helpful when you're being attacked by an enemy, because what's an enemy going to do? Well, like most enemies do, they just divert those aqueducts. They can cut off your water to where eventually you got to come out, right? You need water, right? right? The enemy has no power, though, over you if you have a well, a deep well on the inside of those walls. I think it's a really helpful image to think about because the peace that you and I often seek, the peace that maybe you walked into here tonight seeking, the peace that the world seeks, it depends on our surroundings, doesn't it? 
It depends on things going the way that we want them to. Our peace is then determined by something leaving our lives that we don't want or something coming back into our lives that we really want. We all know how this works. It depends on our surroundings. So in time of trouble, our source of peace, what happens? It's cut off. It doesn't flow, does it? But guys, the peace of Christ that's being described for you in Isaiah chapter 9 is a spring from the inside of your heart. Do you see? If the darkness that I'm walking in and the peace I lack beneath the peace, right, is actually that I was made to be in a relationship with God, but I looked at him too many times and said, you know what, you don't get me. You don't know how this works. I'm going to trust in this thing instead. Right? And I'm walking in darkness because I'm separated from God, but Jesus has come as the Prince of Peace, and he climbed up onto a cross and paid with his own life. The light has shined so that I could be brought near to God. I could be reconciled to God through his blood. Do you know what that does for me now? That puts a spring in my soul. That means that every single day of your life, if you know Jesus, is you walking around marveling at his name, Emmanuel. Oh, God is with me. God is with me. And I'm headed towards a day when all I will know is light. Why? Because I won't have a bunch of lamps on because God will be with me. That's the great promise of peace. It's, it's the peace I need. It's the peace between me and God, right? That'll change your life, you guys. That'll change your life. That's the wonder of Christmas. No one can cut off that source. You can experience lots of brokenness. The world isn't the way it should be, but peace is coming, right? You can have lots of things happen that'll cut off that source of peace, but you go, you know what? I still got this well. I got this well. So again, guys, if you were to describe peace, I'm curious how you would describe it. I mean, you could say peace is having a well of water that no one can cut off from me. Peace is knowing that the sin that separated me from God that threw me into the darkness has been paid for by God himself at great cost of his, this child's life. His peace is knowing that God is with me. That's peace. Trust me. Do you have that? Let's pray. Lord, your word says uh, in Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Lord, I pray tonight that our minds would be stayed on you as we look at lots of places in our lives where there's a lack of peace. Father, I pray that we would experience the well from within that only comes through Jesus. God, I pray for anyone here tonight that doesn't know you, that doesn't have that kind of peace, that you would open their eyes. 
that they would see the light of your gospel, Jesus, the full image of God, and that they would turn to you and trust in you for, for all things, to be their Lord, to be their Savior, to offer forgiveness, to bring the peace that they long for. And I pray for those of us tonight who know this, probably heard this passage a million times over, God, I pray we'd come and warm ourselves by the fire of your gospel tonight and that you would restore the peace that you promised to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.